Matthew 9. Over the last about 30 years, there's been kind of a succession of people that have surfaced that have grievously betrayed the United States of America. And uh, just even mentioning some of these names, uh, and certainly they're going to bring to your mind just the depth of hardship problems these people have done and, and selling secrets of the United States to uh, other powers. For instance, there is Aldrich Ames, who uh, cooperated with the Russians. And what he did is he actually released the names of all the different people the CIA was working with that were in Russia. These were Russian dissidents that realized that what was taking place there. He released all of their names and each one of them was apprehended. Some were tortured. All of them were executed. Then there is Robert uh, Hansen. He crippled the whole FBI's counterintelligence activities for two decades by selling secrets to the KGB. And he eventually was actually caught when a U.S. official was eventually able to pay a high enough price to get the KGB file on Robert Hansen and his two decades worth of activity. And he was arrested and imprisoned. And then there was John Anthony Walker, Jr., Uh, Perhaps uh, he debilitated the United States in terms of intelligence more than any other. Uh, He for he was a U.S. Navy officer and he cooperated with the Russians from 1968 to 1985. And he is responsible for helping the Russians figure out the encryption of uh, over a million messages the Navy had sent. Now, when we talk about these people and their betrayal and all the loss of lives that are a result of these men's activities, it stirs us, there's something visceral, something wrong. It makes us upset, angry. Today we're going to meet a person who was considered like a Benedict Arnold in Israel. He didn't sell military secrets, but he certainly uh, sided with those who are the enemy occupying power. And we're speaking of a particular tax collector. Now, You actually are pretty familiar with this guy. When we say his name, you generally have positive feelings. You think highly of him. That would not be the case when this man is initially introduced in Scripture. His name is Matthew. And he was seen as one of the ultimate traitors. Now, as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus did an amazing miracle just preceding this event in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Jesus heals a man who had been paralyzed. And before he heals him, though, he tells this man that your sins are forgiven. Now, in order to say that your sins are forgiven, you've got to be, first of all, the one who's offended. You've got to be God himself. And you have to have the ability to do something about it, to actually pay the penalty for a person's wrongdoings. And every time Jesus on earth forgave a person's sins, he always was looking to the cross where he would go, where he would eventually be nailed, he would bleed, and he would truly pay as the perfect son of God the sin of the people that he was forgiving. But how far will Jesus go to forgive a sinner? Like, can you be so bad and so wicked and do something so heinous or multiple things like that where God says, you know what? I'm sorry, you're just outside of my purview. I'm I'm focusing and honing in on these particular people. But can you do something that is so bad where Jesus, God, simply can't forgive you? I've asked that question. 
I'd like to know, is it possible that God could forgive a guy like me? All the different things I've done. Now, maybe I haven't like extensive criminal record or done something that you might be reading about in the news. But let me assure you, I'm in the camp of chief of sinners. I'd imagine that if you think closely about your life, you'd recognize that that's true about yourself as well. Think of all the different things you've said or didn't say, things that you've done, things that you would be so embarrassed about if people knew about your life. Can Jesus truly change a life like mine, like yours, like Matthew? Well, we're going to find out how are people truly changed by Jesus. Now, the first thing you got to see here, beginning in verse 9, this is an amazing passage here. You got to see that that Matthew actually receives the call. He receives a call from Jesus himself. Look at verse nine, Matthew nine. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, Matthew, uh, his his Jewish name is Levi. Okay. Now, people in biblical times generally had two or three names. You had a, a Jewish name, if you were Jewish, obviously. Uh, then you'd perhaps have a Roman name, maybe also a Greek name. He was always called Levi by the Jews. But his, his Roman name is Matthew. And his job is he is a tax collector. Now, if you're an IRS agent, you're off the hook because you're not a betrayer of your country. But the Jewish people saw tax collectors as indeed just that. And that is because what they did is they actually uh, bid for a contract to collect taxes for the Roman Empire. Now, in Palestine, in this area of Israel, they actually were employees of the Roman government. Okay, And what happened, because Israel is on the far flung of the Roman Empire, they would actually employ people who were natives of the land to collect taxes. Because especially in Israel, they didn't understand all the different trades and customs of the people. And they never wanted to be deceived. And so what they did is that they would actually have what is called tax farming. And they would say that a particular area was worth so much in taxes. And then people, you had to be a native Jew, would bid on this. And the highest bidder would then get the contract. And his job was to collect taxes from his own people. Now, in order to step out there and align your, from Judaism and align yourself with the Romans was to basically betray your people. And then you're going to turn around and you're going to tax them. Now, they had an assessment. So, for instance, now, Herod Antipas, he's the guy who's ruling over Galilee and Perea. He he was by Rome, Rome's Roman standards. He was supposed to collect the equivalent of about five million dollars from his particular area. And so that is what had to be turned in. Now, they had a whole bunch of tax collectors. It wasn't like one or two. But Matthew, at some point in his life, made the decision, whether it was because he was driven by money or perhaps he thought that he would be different than the other tax collectors. He makes the decision to bid on a contract to collect money from his own people. And he actually gets it. Now, how it worked is. There, there wasn't really a system per se of like, you know, each little fish amounted to this amount of tax or this particular goods. There was no standard. When you showed up with your card of goods, if you were a trader or you had collected all these fish, you actually never really knew how much you were going to be charged. Because how the tax collectors worked is they knew how much they had to bring in on an annual basis. 
But they also, anything extra they taxed, anything extra they could make, it all belonged to them. And so the whole situation just invited extortion. And that's why the tax collectors were, supposed, were completely despised. They not only are collecting what the Roman government said you needed to pay, but they were collecting generally far more. And let's say you showed up with your cart of goods and all of a sudden they just said, well, today, you know, all these fish, this wagon, these mules here, those goats, uh, it's going to come to this. And if you didn't feel like paying, well, with every tax collector at his booth, you also had Roman soldiers. And they had a way of convincing you that paying that tax would be a real good thing. Okay? And if you're kind of thinking you're going to just, you know, I've had enough of these taxes. You know? I live in a country, and you guys are overrunning. You don't even belong there. This is my money. I earned it the hard way. You can't take it from me. Well, if you felt that way, and you were going to go verbal on that or tell that tax collector what you thought about his ideas of taxation that day, all he had to do is go, hey, meet Joe over here, you know? And he's just looking for a fight. And if that didn't... And, If that didn't scare you, all you had to do is remember that the Romans on a very regular basis crucified people. And they always did it in very public places just to remind all the occupying countries and the inhabitants thereof who's in control. You go our way or else. Voila. And so the Jewish people really simply didn't have a choice. I'm sure there were a few that tried to fight the system. You only had one fight. And you always lost. Matthew collected taxes from his own people. He would be perhaps like what the, um, like for the Dutch and the French, when they actually had people, the local collaborators with the Nazis prior to World War II and during World War II. Those people that were French but were working with the Nazis were Dutch and betraying their own countrymen. Or perhaps like the Africans felt toward those African assistants who assisted European slave traders. These were their own people. They'd come and capture them with nets and tie them up and beat them up and haul them off the slave ships. Just imagine what those people must have been perceived as. Once you get a picture of that, when we say the word tax collector, you start to understand who Matthew was and how seriously he was despised. Let me just paint you a little picture here. If you were a tax collector, you were barred from going to, into any synagogue. Worship? Uh-uh. No way. Not anymore. Not any, with any of the God's people, the Israel? No. You were forbidden to have any religious or social contact with a Jew. Uh, Jewish people who were trying to follow the law, they wouldn't even so much as touch you. Don't think you're going to go to any more family gatherings. You've lost your friends. No one's going to even touch you. You may as well have leprosy. Uh, furthermore, they actually ranked tax collectors as unclean animals. They were actually in the same category as swine. And so to dehumanize them and to treat them poorly and despise them, well, that, was, that was almost to be expected. They were held to be traitors, congenital liars, they were forbidden even to give testimony in Jewish court. They became the symbols for the worst kind of people. So you could safely say that uh, Matthew, he didn't get asked to go speak at career day very often at the local elementary school. Okay? Because no one would want to be a tax collector in Israel. That is why verse 9 is so surprising. It is a meant to just, what? You've got to be kidding What is Jesus doing? I mean, one thing about the paralytic. But a tax collector? 
And in verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. He was right there in the midst of all his vulgarity, all his pride, all his arrogance, all his sinfulness. And Jesus, he doesn't give him an invitation like, I'd like you to come to a little party that I'm having. He actually gives him a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not even an invitation. It is a command. Follow me. It's a present imperative. And it means literally to, as a way of life. He's, Jesus isn't asking him, hey, I want you to just kind of hang out with me for a couple hours. We're going to get an ice cream cone. Things will be cool. No, he's telling him, I want you to follow me for your life. He is giving him a lifestyle command. Follow me. Jesus is telling this wicked tax collector, I want you to be with me. I want you to walk in my steps. I want you to be with me. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing to completely unnerve everyone around him. Now, think about it. Remember who he's already told this to? Remember Peter and Andrew earlier? Or uh, remember there are some others like James and John? Remember what he said to them? He said, Follow me. And these fishermen did what? They actually left their stuff, their fishing business, and followed Jesus. Now, let me tell you something. Peter and Andrew, those brothers, James and John, they probably very likely knew Matthew because he's the tax collector. And they likely hated him to death. They absolutely despised this man. This man likely always took a cut out of everything they made. Every fish that was brought in, Matthew always could take a cut. And it could change from day to day. He could make their life miserable. And as per the standards of tax collectors that day, he probably did. When Jesus says with his group of guys with him to Matthew, follow me. These guys are like, what are you doing, Jesus why don't you get some decent people like us, fishermen? Can't th- There's got to be better people than a guy, a tax collector like Matthew. Not him. But he utters this simple command, follow me. You know, if you're going to be truly changed by Jesus, friends, you've got to receive the call. His call. Do you know that Jesus today is still calling out the, the people of the world, come, follow me. He does it through pulpits around the world. He does it in private gatherings of friends. He does it through the radio. Anytime the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection is proclaimed, it is an invitation to every single lost person, whether you're a tax collector or a prostitute, whether you are the worst of sinners or you happen to think you're a pretty decent guy, it is a call, come follow me. If you're going to truly be changed by Jesus, You've got to receive that call. You've got to hear it. Today, if you're here and you're listening, the call is to, from Jesus, come follow me. But there's something else. It's not just receiving the call. Friends, we have to respond to the call. There's many, many people that have heard Jesus say, come follow me. Leave it. Leave your sin. Repent. Turn from it. Trust me. Follow me. But you not only have to receive his call, you have to respond to his word. And how will Matthew 
respond to Jesus' command. I mean, think of it. He has everything to lose. The fishermen, when Jesus said, hey, listen, come, follow me. When they left their nets and their little boats and their little fishing rods, they could always go back to fishing, right? Matthew walks away from that contract, which he paid probably a very high sum of money for. He could never go back. He left it all if he was to follow Jesus. How did he respond? Well, look in verse 9. Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. This is an amazing scene. He actually gets up and he follows Jesus. He walks away. He doesn't say, hey, I'll catch up with you guys in a little bit, whoever he has working with him, those Roman soldiers that are at his tax booth. He says, goodbye. I will not be coming back. And he walks away from everything that he had known, all the money that he could make. He leaves it all behind. You know, it's one of the things that's really amazing about Matthew. He doesn't have any conditions. Remember in the previous chapter, there were people who were saying, hey, Jesus, I'd like to follow you. Just first, let me go and uh, have my dad die so I can collect his inheritance and stuff and get my finances in order. And then I'm going to follow you on my terms. A lot of people are like that. Jesus, I'll follow you when it's convenient, when it doesn't make me look a little awkward around everybody else. I'll follow you on my terms. I'll follow you on Sunday morning if I can get out of bed and get here. Or I'll follow you as long as there's no consequence and certainly doesn't affect my career or anything else. Uh, I don't want to be affected socially. I don't want to be looked at as anything other than totally normal in this world. I'll follow you in secret. No, it never works like that. Jesus says, just come as you are and follow me and I will shape a new identity in you. But you follow me. Well, he leaves it all behind. In fact, Luke actually makes a big deal of this. He leaves literally everything and he follows Jesus. Now, it's interesting. His name is Levi, but he's recorded here as Matthew. Now, Many people think that just like uh, Simon was given the name Peter, means rock by Jesus, that Jesus actually takes Levi and calls him Matthew. Do you know what Matthew means? Okay, we've got a few Matthews here. you know what your name means? Gift of God. What? A tax collector? A traitor? A gift of God? I don't think so. But you know what? That's exactly how Jesus works. He takes the vilest, the refuse, the marginalized the society, and he turns them into gifts of God because of his transforming work in Christ. It doesn't matter how bad you are and what sort of sin you've involved yourself in, how ugly you've made your life. Jesus transforms you from the inside out as you trust him and follow him. And he can change your name to the gift from God. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, think of it. Do you know that Jesus takes this tax collector and turns him into one of his apostles? Do you know this book that we're studying, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew? It was written by Matthew, the despised, cheating, lying tax collector. It was written by him. 
He became the author of this as the Holy Spirit worked in him. He became an evangelist, a discipler of men. What we know of his life is that he actually spent all of his life working with Jewish people, showing them that Jesus is the Messiah, not only in Israel, but in surrounding Gentile countries where Jews were located. He dedicated his life to pointing people to the Messiah. And although we do not know a whole lot about his life, we don't even have any real reliable records on how he died. The earliest church traditions held that this Matthew, the tax collector, who now follows Jesus, dies as a martyr as he is burned at a stake because of his uncompromising faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are going to truly be changed by Jesus, you not only have to hear his call, you must respond in faith and say, Lord, I will follow you. Let the chips fall where they may. By the way, this is Jesus' strategy. Jesus' strategy was always to select just a very few individuals, 12 to be specific. Now, he never neglected the masses. He preached, proclaimed, did all these widespread healings, but he truly invested himself in the 12. He poured his life into them and through their lives as they became convinced of his deity, of his power. They were compelled by his mission and they were controlled by his spirit. He would literally change the world through these men. And so really the records of the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, is like a discipleship manual of how Jesus trained his men. Because he was going to reveal himself to these men, everything he would want them to know about life, about godliness, about faith about death, hell, eternity, heaven. He would die for them and pay the penalty for the sin of all who would believe in him. And then he would rise again and empower them for life. And they would carry on his ministry. That was always his strategy, to make an investment in the few. And these few that he selected, one of them was Matthew, the tax collector. Now, it's pretty interesting Matthew, in his gospel, you know how many times he quotes the Old Testament? Ninety-nine times. Actually, that's more than Mark, Luke, and John all put together. What is it that's going on in this Matthew? Now, Matthew, the tax collector, does he go to synagogue? No. No, he doesn't go. He doesn't go. He's, he's rejected by society. What led him to walk away from everything and follow Jesus when Jesus just shows up at his tax booth and says, come, follow me? Now, It's very likely that Matthew had heard and seen Jesus. I mean, Jesus is causing basically like an uproar in Galilee. He's healing people, casting out demons. People are coming from everywhere to hear about him. Matthew's running the tax booth, so people are coming in, and you know what they're talking about. They're talking about, whoa, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. And they're telling all these things that this Jewish rabbi named Jesus is doing. Because he's around, he's most likely heard him preach. He's seen him, maybe even witnessed a miracle. He'd been familiar with Jesus, but let me also tell you what he's familiar with. He's familiar with the scriptures. Perhaps in Matthew, there was this gnawing spiritual hunger. Because let's be real, friends. When you and I are apart from God, when we're doing life on our own, our sin gnaws at us, doesn't it? Don't you feel completely empty, hollow, ashamed, embarrassed? I mean, you look in the mirror and you're going, sorry, wretched. And yet you kind of float around in the world 
And you're trying to find some sort of semblance of identity and peace. And you try to cling on to anything from sports to accolades to making some money to having some friends. But inside, when you put your little head on that pillow, you know that you are worthless and you are sinful and it eats at you. Certainly, Matthew must have felt that all the time. Every time Jewish people, little kids spitting on him, women like pulling their kids away from him, men just ah, cussing him out calling him vulgar words, certainly felt it. It seems that he was turning to the scriptures. God was working in him a hunger for God himself, for peace, for life, for forgiveness, for hope. You spend time reading the scriptures and the Old Testament keeps pointing to a Messiah, a promised one. Obviously, it was pretty crystal clear in his mind because Matthew records time and time again about Jesus fulfilled this prophecy and this as it was spoken in the scriptures. And once he saw and heard Jesus, and once Jesus says, come, follow me, he literally got up and left it all. Now, there's one other thing I I need to tell you if you're going to truly follow Jesus. You not only have to actually be receiving his call. You not only have to be responding to his word. But one of the things that is demonstrated by Matthew and is described by Jesus is you have to realize your need. You have to know that you are a sinner in need of the help and the forgiveness of the Savior. Well, this is pretty interesting. Look at verse 10. Jesus is invited to a party thrown by Matthew. Luke actually records this in great detail about this enormous banquet that Matthew actually holds at his own house. Matthew writes this. He simply never wants to draw attention to himself. But look what he writes, verse 10. By the way, this is his own personal testimony written in Scripture. Verse 10. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, this is pretty amazing. Matthew is so transformed by uniting his life with Christ, following him, that you know what happens when you truly know Christ and you're just very excited about what he's doing in your life? You have a tendency to tell others. In fact, you might even do like Matthew and hold a party just so people could come to know Jesus. Well, that's what he does. He invites his friends. Okay, so if you're despised by all of your countrymen, who do you have as friends? Well, other tax collectors, right? They probably had a little support group, you know? Got together with them. I made a lot of money, but I'm hated by everybody. Me too, you know? And they could relate to one another, right? And then, and so, you know, you're also associated with the other riffraff of society. There's people, and it happens today, They're completely marginalized. They know it. They know you don't accept them. They see it in your eyes. You always turn your head from them. They're not good enough for you. And so, you know, there's people that are thieves. There are people that are Gentiles living in Israel trying to figure out, what? how did I end up in here? Because I'm hated by everybody. I'm like, no one. I feel like I'm a dog. They treat me bad here. And then, of course, you know, prostitution, which was pretty widespread. Other people that... They actually put them in this large category called sinners. If you were a Jew and you just didn't really follow the Jewish law real closely, you know, Pharisees especially, they, they, this is the term they had for you. You're going to love it. Sinner. You're just a sinner. You can't do it. You can't do it like us. You're just a sinner. Morally corrupt, you're a sinner. 
They don't like you. You're a sinner. And you just have this big category. Sinner. Tax collectors, like ultra bad and sinners. Well, guess who Matthew has as friends? That's all he has. That's all he has left. So he invites these people to come and see Jesus. Now, this had to have been staggering. Think about it. Everybody had been hearing about Jesus. Jesus does what has never been done before. If you were an esteemed rabbi, you never would go to a tax collector or a Gentile's house. We've already seen that earlier. And yet, Jesus doesn't see anything like that. He is the Savior for the world. And he gets invited to Matthew's home for a big party in his honor, and he goes. Now, these tax collectors and the quote-unquote sinners, Matthew's friends, I would imagine that they probably were responding much like what happens today in some circles when they hear of someone who's now trusting Jesus. Oh, no, that's the worst thing that could happen to them. They're going to become a Jesus freak now. Oh, especially think of it. You make a lot of money. You're you're I mean, he's the guy's wealthy, doesn't have friends, but he is wealthy and he's got resources. His other tax collector friends are going, what are you thinking? You mean you're going to leave? You left your what? You left your tax collection booth to follow this Jewish rabbi who's causing problems? He's going to get himself killed and pretty soon? What are you doing? You've lost your life. You blew it. You had a chance to make something of yourself, Matthew. Levi, whatever your name is now. And you're now a, you're going to be a what? A follower of Jesus? What? But isn't that what Jesus said? If you will lose your life for my sake, you will find it. But you must lose it in the eyes of the world. Well, it must have been some kind of party. Because you got... You have Jesus with all the tax collectors. You have the Pharisees and the scribes who are watching this. They can't get near Matthew or the gang there, right? Because they hate him, right? And they don't want to touch him because they become unclean. And they're watching all this. Now, there's, let me just tell you, there's two great barriers that prevent people from truly coming to Christ. One is the belief that there is a refusal to recognize your need. A belief that you really don't need Jesus. That there's a spark of goodness in all of you. And if you could just light that little flame a little bit more and blow it up, you know, you'd be really a wonderful person, right? You don't really, you don't really have a need for forgiveness. Because you really don't see yourself that bad. Yeah, you made a few bad turns. You need to turn over a leaf. No. Let me give you the other one. The belief that salvation could be earned and is deserved. The idea that you could work it if I just do so many good things. Or I read my Bible or show up at church or I do a little rosary thing or I do it 20 times or 100 times or I do this or I do a good deed or I go on a mission trip that God will see that I'm a really decent person and I actually care about things that he's interested in and he will accept me. And that's what I want. Actually, it is always by grace. Now, okay, so we got the party going on. Do you see that? Jesus and his disciples, the disciples had never been at a tax lawyer's house. I mean, talk about stiff as starch going in there like, oh, my goodness, I can't touch any of this stuff. Jesus, get me out of here. You know, they're like, you know, I'm like, Jesus is sitting down. He's eating. They're handing him food. He's eating it. He's with all of the untouchables and these people they hate. Well, there's some other folks that are watching. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, did you see that? They're not talking to Jesus. It's like they're trying to drive a wedge. You always find this with people that are trying to cause a division. 
whether in whether at work, in your home, in a church, you go after a few other people. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to now get their disciples to turn on Jesus because now Jesus is blatantly in sin. He's in a tax collector's house. He, something is wrong with this guy is what they're trying to say. And so they go to his disciples. You see that in verse 11? And they say this. It might even sound like a snake when they said it. Why is your teacher, and they probably say that rather sarcastically, your teacher, he ain't our teacher, our teacher would never do that, your teacher, eating with the tax collectors and sinners. Can you help us out with that? Why is he doing this? Well, Jesus probably had pretty good hearing. In fact, he is omniscient. Here's here's everything, friends. Nothing gets by Jesus, not even your thoughts. Just keep that in mind. Well, look at this. They're talking to the the disciples of Jesus. And this this happens on multiple occasions. Then Jesus is like, hey, let me help you out here. And he joins in the conversation like, ah, we were talking to you. Well, look at verse 12. But when Jesus heard this, he said, come here, guys. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Trying to put this together. What what are you talking about? And he says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go and learn what this means. Verse 13. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And he quotes Hosea 6, 6. Let me let me start out with the very basics. I am one who desires compassion, not sacrifice. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had this system of always trying to do these works. And they were trying to follow every single sacrifice. And those things were meant to be good when they're done from a heart of devotion. But they had slipped into the pattern that is so common to humanity of doing the quote unquote right things with the wrong heart. And they didn't have compassion and they really didn't love God. They were just trying to earn God's favor. And he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, which you think you are, which you are not, but sinners. You see, the people that need to be made well are those who are sick. And what the Jewish establishment did is kind of like the equivalent of coming to people who are drowning and trying to give them swimming lessons. And they're like, what they really need is rescuing. And they're like, oh, I need to put an arm here and stroke here. Like, I'm dying out here. And they need to be rescued. The Pharisees just always kept putting this system. And they had, they had not only the law given by, the, by God himself to follow, but they had their, all their extra laws, which were far more than God ever gave, that were extremely excessive, that no one could follow, probably not even them. But that's how legalists work. By the way, if your presupposition is legalism, following rules, you know what it leads to? It always leads to arrogance, condescension, and pride. However, if your presupposition is grace, then it leads to humility, thankfulness, and desire for all people to come to know the God of all grace. What Jesus is saying is, I desire compassion. You should be like that. I am here to make those who are sick, spiritually, dead, lost in their sins, despised by society. I'm here to make them well and whole. That is why I came. And friends, if you're here today and you know you're spiritually sick, you know you're dead in your trespass and sins, you know you will face the absolute judgment of God. I want to tell you, there is a Savior and his name is Jesus. 
and he is a friend to sinners like me and like you so that we might experience reconciliation with God, forgiveness, freedom from sin, newness of life, because Christ has paid the penalty for our sins and he's risen again on our behalf. You want him? Come, follow me, is what he says. I will change you from the inside out. Now, Jesus says he is the physician. I have come to make the sick well. Think about it. Like my doctor. I don't want my doctor to have as his game plan, I just want to keep Grant out of the hospital, which has been hard at different times, but that, that is not his game plan, just to keep him out of the hospital. I want my doctor for me, want, to want me to be well, vibrant, mature, being able to function, to do things, right? Don't you want your... How many doctors, your game plan is, I just want to keep people out of the hospital? No, you want people well, functioning. Well, so does Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to take us for spiritually just barely out of the hospital, so to speak. He wants us well, mature, vibrant, involved, caring, engaged in his mission, in his ministry. He wants us well, and he is capable of doing it. It's not merely to rescue you and to just leave you like barely alive on the ship deck, but it is to rescue you, clean you up, change you from the inside out, empower you, bring you to health, bring you to healing, and to send you out into the world fully alive. That is what Jesus is doing, and he is doing it with Matthew, and Matthew is a picture of what Jesus Christ can do in a life. Now, how do we reach out to those who are far from God? You see, Jesus is in the process of doing his ministry, and he oftentimes does it through his people. God wants to use us to accomplish his ministry. But if that is to take place, friends, then we have to do ministry like Jesus did it. Until we are a friend of sinners, we're going to have a real hard time leading anybody else to the friend of sinners. And let me just tell you, we're not doing real good. For instance, uh, in a book called Unchristian, David Kinnaman, he uh, did all this research. He went out through all of Barna's statistics, and he recently published this. They are looking at people born from 1965 to 2002. And of these young people, nine out of ten folks that are outside of the church, they're non-believers, they're skeptics, 87% of those people, nine out of ten people in this age group who are non-believers, think that Christian, Christianity is best described as judgmental. They know us as critical. And among these, these non-Christians that are surveyed, 84% of them said they actually knew a committed Christian. They said, yeah, I've got a committed Christian friend. But only 15% of those quote-unquote committed Christian friends, they said, had a lifestyle that was any different than theirs whatsoever. You see, we've got two strikes against us. We're known as being judgmental and critical, and we're also known to be very chameleon-like. We just match the environment. We follow Jesus at a distant distance and on our terms. God wants to use us. How will he do it? Well, let me just tell you how to reach out to those who are far from God. First of all, you've got to have intimacy with God. You have to love him. Enjoy him. There is to find pleasure in being in his presence, to, be, to read his word, to pray. Let me get to tell you something else. You actually have to involve yourself with others. You have to somehow make entrance into the lives of those who do not know God, whether it be through work or at school or on your sports team. I mean, there's there's a guy in our church. 
You know how we give all that Panera bread after service to people that need it? Well, there's a guy in our church. He takes that to an elderly agnostic couple. And he does so for inroads for the gospel. You've got to have involvement with the lives of other people. Other people. You've got to gain entrance into their lives. It helps by just being friendly. Let me tell you something else. And you need to have integrity, authenticity. Just be yourself. Please don't be fake. Don't be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Uh, just be real. And walk with God with integrity. Be the real deal. Let me give you something else. Inquire about spiritual matters. Sure, you can talk about everything else that's under the sun that's going on. But every once in a while, fire a question about spiritual matters. Ask them, hey, what do you, what do you believe about God? Do you have any spiritual beliefs? What is your spiritual background? Enter into those kind of conversations. And then finally, identify with Christ and how he has changed your life. People need to know that Jesus Christ is the most important aspect of our being. And we do so by loving people and letting them know that Jesus loved them and we love Christ. We are God's ambassadors. And in life, you can either be a judge and see people as their judge, or you can see people with the eyes of a doctor. That these people, no matter where they're at and what they've done, they can be made well by Jesus. Because after all, he has changed our lives as well. You know, there are days going to come where that person in your office or at school, they're going to have breakdown and they'll need answers. We want to earn the right to enter into their life where they'll call us or send us an email or on Facebook connect with us because they know that we love them. In the book that was released last year, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, John Dixon writes about this, about his introduction to the Christian faith. He grew up in Australia, and apparently um, a residual part of their Christian heritage is that in many of their high schools, they still once a week have a scripture class. And in this particular scripture class where he was attending, there was a woman by the name of Brenda uh, that she would go and she would teach the scripture. But then she would actually she invited all of these students to come to her house. And he said, normally an announcement like that would totally go unnoticed, like in a scripture class. She also said, but I, and if you get hungry, I'm going to be making burgers. We're having milkshakes and scones. So please, I just want to invite you to come. And he's sitting there thinking, whoa, why, why would she invite us? She, he said, you know, I and all the rest of the lads here, we're real skeptics. And some of these guys were bad news. One was a drug dealer and user. One of them had a record of breaking and entering. One was the class clown and the bully. And she's inviting everybody to come to her, their house, her house. Now, he said, you know, I just could never figure Brenda out. She was intelligent. She was kind. She was when the VCR got stolen out of her house. And, you know, obviously, who would you suspect? <laughs> she didn't make a big deal out of it. No matter what. Not a problem. I'm not sure how it happened. Just happened. And he writes this in this book. And I'd like to read it to you. He says, for me, her open, flexible, generous attitude toward us sinners was the doorway into a life of faith. As we ate and drank and talked, it was clear that this was no missionary ploy on her part. She truly cared for us and treated us like friends or perhaps more accurately like sons. As a result, over the course of the next year, she introduced several of us from the class to the ultimate friend of sinners, Jesus, just by inviting people in her class to come to have discussions about God and to enjoy some good food and fellowship. 
Friends, God intends to use his people. But if we're going to be involved in this ministry, we must do ministry his way. And we need to see people with the eyes of Jesus, the eyes of a doctor, not their judge. We're no one's judge. We're merely ambassadors of the great king. And this morning, I'd like to have uh, Susan Bell just join me up on stage here. Susan has a very unique ministry. Susan has the, the privilege of touching lives that, that we may not normally get to. And I, I've heard about some of the things that are going on with her class and, what, and her ministry around this community. I think some of you have read or heard about her. I wanted her just to share just for a few minutes what God is doing through your ministry. Okay. Well, um, I've been in the fitness ministry for over a decade, and um, I primarily taught in a gym setting. And I've always kind of seen my uh, career in fitness as a ministry, but there's really only so much you can do in a gym setting. And so in January, I started a class here at the church, a Zumba fitness class. And I started it on Monday nights, and it quickly grew um, to where they wanted another, another class. So we have one on Monday nights and then on Saturday mornings. And um, basically what I do is just lead the class in an hour of Zumba fitness. And then at the end, I do a little five-minute devotion and then have uh, prayer time with the class. Um, uh, if you're not familiar with Zumba, it's uh, very out of the box. It's, not your typ- it's definitely not what you would think would be a typical church ministry. And it's not even a real typical um, fitness class. Um, it's a Latin-based uh, dance fitness class and if you're familiar at all with latin music there's a lot of hip shaking and um it's not mostly christian music i do throw in some christian songs in there but it's mostly latin and some hip-hop and some different things like that um therefore it it attracts all kinds of people um it attracts fit unfit young old and christians and definitely non-christians a lot of people who would never step foot in a church for anything other than maybe coming to a Zumba fitness class. Uh, my hope when I started the class was to um, just enrich and encourage those who were already Christians, besides wanting to get them physically fit, because that's my job, but, um, but also for those who weren't uh, believers, that they might hear the message and just God would do his thing. And that's exactly what he's done. Um, uh, just recently, well, every week I get cards or emails or Facebook messages from people who have been impacted by the messages in the class. And um, just recently I got a card from someone who was not a believer but was invited to my class by a believer and came. And um, through the impact of the class and her friend, she recently became a believer and was baptized not too long ago. So that was really exciting. I also have um, another person who is very faithful in my class who, um, if you looked at her from the outside, is not someone you would typically see in a church covered in tattoos and um, uses very rough language, Um, but she loves the class. And when she started coming, I thought, well, this is someone who will not stay for the devotion part. She'll take off. But um, I started quickly after the class started, she started emailing me and would say, would you go over the devotion again with me? Or would you go over the scripture and explain it to me? And if she would ever miss a class, she'll email me and say, would you tell me what you did for your Devo? Can we go over it? And, um, and I recently got a card from her as well saying um, how much of an impact the class is having on her and how she's changing her life. And so it's just been really, really exciting. And I would ask for you guys to just pray for our class, that it will continue to uh, enrich those who are already believers and reach those who aren't. Thank you. Thank you.
So, Jesus is asking, come, follow me, and I will change you from the inside out, and I will use you to bring people to me. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege we've had to open up your word and to understand in fresh ways what it means to follow you and to see how you have worked through someone like Matthew, a despised tax collector, and turned him into a disciple of your son who is used greatly to influence lives, to bring them to the Savior. So, Father, I pray that that would be true of us that we'd not walk out of here going, our church needs to be a little bit more involved in the community. No, we'd, we need to know, Lord, you desire for us to be involved in the lives of the people you've placed in our path. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to bring many people to a life-saving and changing relationship with your son. Father, if there's someone here today who has never placed their faith in you, and they understand for the first time you are a friend of sinners, For you have paid the penalty for their sin. You call them to repent, turn away from their sin, to trust you and to follow you. But they pray with me and say, Lord, this morning I turn from my selfishness and my sin. And I trust Jesus Christ alone. And I follow him. Whatever that means, Lord, would you empower it and enable it for your glory. And we'd ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.